0: Sustainable development has now replaced economic growth as the, as the objective of the trade system. Uh, if you look at the preamble of the WTO and you compare it with the preamble of the general agreement of, of tourism trade, you see that the objective is no longer simply economic growth, but it's sustainable development, including environmental protection.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Paris Scope. We are very happy to welcome Dr. Elena Chima today to finally discuss a climate change related topic on our podcast, which has been hugely requested. We will be taking on this pressing issue from a more legal perspective and examine Dr. Chima's research and opinion on international energy governance trade and foreign investment from the perspective of sustainability and climate change. Overall, we want to examine the potential role law as such and in particular legal frameworks in these respective domains can play in addressing climate change. Before we dive into these issues, let me present Dr. Chima's rich work and experience. Before joining the University of Geneva as a research and teaching fellow in 2019, Dr. Chima studied law at the University of Milan, where she earned her bachelor, and Yale Law School, where she completed her master's degree. From 2011 to 2013, Dr. Chima stayed in Beijing as a Marie Curie Fellow, researching on energy trade and investment at both Tsinghua and Beijing Normal University. For her PhD in international law, she joined the graduate institute here in Geneva, focusing her thesis on the interplay of international trade and environmental norms by illustrating how the legal frameworks of these respective domains have interacted and evolved over time, for example in matters of international treaties, soft law instruments, as well as dispute settlement. Dr. Chima has published extensively on the legal and environmental aspects of energy governance, international trade and investment, as well as dispute settlement with a focus on the United States, China and institutions such as the World Trade Organization. I can highly recommend everyone that is interested in the field to have a look at her many articles and publications. They are really interesting and thought-provoking as they examine issues and actors that are not overly associated with so-called green policies and sustainability. Apart from publishing, she's also responsible for leading several classes on energy and international law, international environmental law, as well as international investment law here at the University of Geneva. Both in teaching and publishing, she works closely with Professor Benge, who some of you might be familiar with. We are very much looking forward to all this expertise and enriching perspective on such a crucial current and future challenge facing our world. Dr. Chima, it is a pleasure to have you on Bariscope. Welcome and thank you for joining us today.
0: Thank you so much for having me it's a great pleasure to be with all of you
1: all right so let's dive directly into your specialization you've been working on the energy sector for several years which is a field that goes largely undiscussed in international relation classes could you describe why the energy sector is key when it comes to addressing climate change and how this issue sparked your interest
0: Of course. Um, I would like to actually switch these two questions. I would like to start by uh, telling you a little bit about how I got interested in energy, international energy law and governance. And I have to say that I have to admit that I got interested in this area and this subject by chance. Um, When I was studying law school, I specialized in international trade law. And I was always very interested in environmental matters and in the way in which international trade law and international environmental law interact. And in those years, 2010, 2011, some of the most interesting and challenging WTO disputes with an environmental component uh, were disputes related to energy, energy technologies, like the Canada renewable energy disputes or natural resources that are relevant for the energy sector, like um, the China, raw materials case, for example. So I got in touch with energy as a subject matter through these disputes. I then of course quickly discovered that energy presents unique challenges uh, for all other areas of international law, investment law, human rights law, environmental law, law of the sea, and so on and so forth. And I started exploring all these different facets and I've been doing that ever since. Now, one of my main areas Of interest in all of this is definitely the role that energy plays in the climate change legal framework and how different areas of international law also interact in this context and definitely it is necessary to discuss energy when discussing climate change Uh, we can we just can't do without energy the energy sector plays an important uh, a complex and i would say a unique role uh, in any discussion regarding climate change. Energy is both part of the problem and part of the solution when we talk about climate change, right? Um, because of course, uh, you know, the, 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 main, the main cause of global warming is the burning of fossil fuels, fossil fuel, carbon-based fuel combustion, uh, which leads to increasing CO2 emissions and concentration in the atmosphere. So energy plays a big role as part of the problem but also as part of the solution. Some of the key strategies uh, in particular to mitigate climate change impacts uh, lie in the energy sector, uh, increasing energy efficiency, um, facilitating the transition towards a renewable energy-based economy. So this dual kind of unique role that energy plays in the context of climate change um, make it a subject that has to be faced, that has to be studied And that really plays a central role in all the discussions in this regard.
1: So thank you very much for underlining the important role of energy in the climate change field. Several of your publications focus precisely on the legal framework of international energy governance. You mentioned the WTO, you mentioned different states. Could you walk us a little bit through the main actors and instruments that are part of this legal framework?
0: Absolutely, and I think it's very interesting that you mentioned the WTO, and this gives a good sense of the fact that we are talking about an institution, an organization that doesn't have an energy mandate, a trade regime, so rules that do not deal exclusively with energy but that are are relevant from an energy perspective. Um, So when we discuss the energy legal framework and the energy institutional framework, I think that there are a few elements that should be put forward from the beginning. The first one is complexity. The legal framework is extremely complex, and this complexity necessarily reflects how complex the energy sector is. Uh, When we think of different energy resources, energy products, energy activities, uh, they pose different challenges and different opportunities from an economic perspective, from an environmental, a geopolitical perspective. Um, If we think of renewable energy, oil, nuclear, we can't compare these different resources so international law will have to tailor its rules to adapt to the specificities of all these different facets of of energy so because the legal object is in itself complex the legal framework has to reflect this complexity and that's why the legal framework is to begin with complex it's also a fragmented legal framework it's very fragmented we do not have uh, a general or an international energy treaty that addresses all uh, aspects related to energy governance. Um, It's a very fragmented framework, and and the reason for this fragmentation, at least in part, is, I believe, the historical evolution and development of international law in this area. Um, Now, the oil spills in the 1960s, uh, the 1973 oil crisis, the creation of the IPCC in 1988, and the understanding of the role of energy in climate change discussions. All of these events have triggered uh, the need for international rules uh, to address energy governance. But until then, energy governance wasn't really addressed uh, by international law. But by the time, international law was already well established, was already well developed. We already had human rights treaties, trade agreements, investment treaties. So these rules adopted to deal with energy had to be framed within an already existing legal framework and that is why rather than um, a coherent um, clearly defined set of treaties dealing just with energy we have energy provisions in trade agreements in investment treaties Uh, we have provisions in environmental conventions human rights instruments that deal with energy Uh, so it's a very fragmented scenario the only exception is uh nuclear nuclear is the only energy resource that is regulated in a in a quite comprehensive and and coherent manner with uh, a set of treaties that deal with all the different aspects of nuclear power utilization and this is largely d- due to the to the high risks uh, that are linked to the exploitation of this resource uh, both in terms of environmental and health related um, damages and of course the risk of this resource being used as a weapon. So fragmentation at the level of the legal framework, the same fragmentation we can find at the level of the of the actors of the institutions. You mentioned states, of course, states are as always in international law and international relations, uh, the most important actors or at least the most traditional actors that we find. Uh, International organizations play a crucial role in energy governance and here again we find a complex and fragmented landscape, because we do not have an international energy organization that has a broad mandate to deal with everything that has to do with energy. Uh, We have some some global organizations that deal with specific resources, uh, such as the International um, Atomic Energy Agency that only deals with nuclear, or IRENA that only deals with renewable energy. We have regional organizations like OPEC. And then we have organizations like the WTO, like the UN, uh, like the, the IMO, the International Maritime Organization, that have completely different mandates, but that to achieve their objectives have to also address energy questions. And I think that as, as a last point, to make it even I think, more complicated, we also have civil society, which is having an increasing role. We have individuals, for example, foreign investors, And we have national legislators, national policymakers, national tribunals and courts that uh, also are playing a very important role. They are helping developing the law, but they contribute to this increasing complexity and fragmentation.
1: Thank you very much for illustrating the complexity of the field and the multitude of of actors that are involved in it. Now, we thought it would be interesting to examine more specifically the role of the World Trade Organization, as one of your most recent articles describes how the US is using WTO rules to push for more sustainable policies. Before this backdrop, to to what extent can the WTO as a forum be used to advance more sustainable policies?
0: Mm, I think there are two different points, two different aspects um, in, this, in this question. First, the role that Uh, trade policies and trade rules in general can play to advance and foster sustainability. And in this case, I think that um, both trade policies and trade rules have an important role to play in this regard. Uh, If we take the the 2030 agenda, for example, for sustainable development, we see that clearly trade instruments, trade policies are listed as tools to achieve sustainable development goals. Um, and of course, trade rules can help, can make a difference if drafted in a way that allows countries to adopt um, sustainable policies at the domestic level. When we move to the actual forum, the WTO, is the WTO an appropriate or either, even simply an effective forum to deal with the interrelationship between trade and sustainability? Here it becomes more complicated. Uh, and that is why, uh, for instance, I believe that this proposal, this proposal has sparked our interest immediately. Uh, mine and, and my co-authors, uh, Professor and Beng, that you have mentioned earlier, precisely because it puts the WTO back, uh, back in the front of the discussions on trade and environment. For a long time, um, the main argument, the main view has been um, against seeing the WTO as an appropriate forum to discuss trade and environment. It's it's a trade institution, it should just deal with trade. Um, Developing countries in particular have been against perceiving uh, the WTO as uh, a forum to discuss trade and environment. So for me already, the forum, the context in which this proposal has been advanced is extremely interesting. This proposal has been advanced in the context of the structured discussions on Trained and Environmental Sustainability, which is an initiative launched about a year ago by a group of WTO members, including developing countries, several developing countries. So this shows a change of perspective. Uh, This initiative seems to convey the idea that actually the WTO could be the right forum to discuss all of these questions. And the North-South divide that had traditionally historically characterized the, the discussions on trade and environment seems also to uh, slowly disappear. I would I would say so. That's the first element um, that I think is quite interesting of this proposal. Then the proposal itself shows a new perspective, a new approach towards this idea of greening trade rules. Uh, for many years, since the 90s, when the first discussions on greening trade rules were advanced, the main question was whether and how to introduce or expand exception clauses within trade agreements, even uh, regarding the subsidies agreement, which is at the heart of the US proposal for a long time. The whole discussion has been should we introduce an exception, an environmental exception um, within this agreement, an agreement that doesn't have an exception yet. The US proposal instead suggests not to introduce an environmental exception among trade rules but to design trade rules with the environment in mind with a sustainable um, objective so this shows a completely different approach uh, change of perspective in the relationship in the interaction between trade and the environment and this would allow precisely because it shows the environment and sustainability as a rule rather than as an exception, it would allow to incorporate environmental principles, such as the principle of no regression. So, the, uh, which asks countries not to lower their environmental standards. And finally, one final small point, these new rules that would be introduced in the, in the subsidies agreement uh, would allow countries to, uh, to offset uh, the subsidies, let's say, um, introduced by lowering environmental standards in certain countries, this might give rise to disputes, which re- require dispute settlement mechanism. And the U.S., which has been not really um, positive towards the, the dispute settlement mechanism in the past, I don't know, five six years, maybe showing some faith in the multilateral trading system, even in terms of settling disputes. So a few, a few, I think, very interesting points uh, in this proposal.
1: Indeed, so in in a more general way, why is this um, dichotomy or antagonism between trade and environment slowly coming together and disappearing? Why do the states embrace um, these new tools to foster more sustainability? And also, uh, what I found interesting is that you said the north-south divide is also not as pronounced anymore. Where would you locate the, the motives behind these developments?
0: So I think that the the short answer to this very important question is towards sustainable development. Um, and I will elaborate now in a, in a slightly longer, longer answer. Um, so I do believe that the introduction of the of the concept of the notion or we can call it even principle, uh, if we want, of sustainable development, late 1980s, early 1990s, represents a watershed moment for Uh, the relationship for the trade and environment nexus. Um, Before this moment, the relationship between the two regimes was highly conflictual, was mostly perceived in terms of conflict. Uh, The objectives that these regimes um, pursued were seen as impossible to reconcile. The the, um, trade community, the environmental community were completely separated. There was no real connection, discussion, communication. And going to the north-south divide, the environmental, and this is something that relates to the emergence of environmental law in general, environmental protection has been seen at the very beginning in the 60s and the 70s as a prerogative of the north. Uh, developing con- Developed countries had already developed through their process of development, they had caused extensive environmental damages. Now that they had the financial means to deal with these environmental damages, it was the time for them to address these issues. Developing and least developed countries felt that they still had a right to develop and they couldn't prioritize protecting the environment over alleviating poverty, uh, solving hunger or or health problems in their own country. So that was the characterization of the the nexus, I would say before uh, the 1990s, end of 1980s then the principle of sustainable development has changed everything for both communities has introduced a gigantic paradigm shift on the one hand for the trade community because sustainable development has now replaced economic growth as the as the objective of the trade system if you look at the preamble of the wto and you compare it with the preamble of the general agreement of of tourism trade you see that the objective is no longer simply economic growth but it's sustainable development including environmental protection but sustainable development hasn't just um, shifted priorities for the trading system it has also shifted priorities for the environmental regime because we do not talk anymore about pure environmentalism we talk about sustainable development we talk about um combining and reconciling the different pillars of sustainable development economic social and uh, environmental considerations so introducing uh, this development element also in the discussion has helped developing countries uh, join the discussions on trade for example and environment as long as trade can pursue environmental objectives while allowing the right to development of several countries, then the discussions can move forward. And so I, I really see this moment as, as the start of a, new, of a new way of approaching all, this, all these questions and, and an evolution, a development of the discussion that is much more promising than it was until uh, mid 1990s, where it was really just about conflict.
1: Thank you very much for all this context, I think this is really really insightful and also um, not overly mentioned in in the classes we have in our international relations studies. I found one of your articles also particularly interesting that sort of describes a similar evolution not with regards to trade but with regards to foreign investment that is also an important force in, in development and uh, presents the risk for host countries, especially if they're less powerful economically speaking, um, to lose their power vis-a-vis foreign actors. And the article you wrote examined Tanzania and uh, a new law the parliament adopted there to prevent this loss of autonomy. Would you be willing to explain your findings from this article and how from this case of Tanzania foreign investment, can be conciliated with sustainability and also the legal certainty that is often demanded by foreign investors.
0: The case of Tanzania, I think, is um, is quite exemplary, uh, I think, to indicate some of the key issues that you have already mentioned and to shed light on what has become one of the newest and I think most challenging questions in international investment law and for the international investment regime at large. In this article, I discuss some new laws that uh, Tanzania has adopted in 2017 regarding the natural resources sector. And these, these laws allow the National Assembly or provide the National Assembly with a power of public scrutiny over investment contracts in the natural resources sector. This means that the National Assembly has the power to review these investment contracts. If any terms of these contracts are found to be contrary to the public interest of the country and its peoples, the National Assembly can initiate a renegotiation process of of these provisions with the investor. If the investor is unwilling or incapable of renegotiating these terms, then the National Assembly has the power to um, expunge unilaterally these terms. Now, the introduction of these new laws in Tanzania responds to a quite overwhelming problem in international investment law, which is the complete lack of balance between the rights of states and of investors. Now, of course, we need to think of where the regime came from. Uh, The regime was initially established to protect foreign investors Uh, and protection of foreign investors was needed at the beginning, because at the beginning, without uh, these instruments, foreign investors in a foreign land had no protection against arbitrary actions from the whole state so this protection was was necessary a whole system has developed to protect investors and for a very long time this has been the only focus of of in international investment law international investment treaties and tribunals but of course the result year after year has been the erosion of national sovereignty states have found themselves incapable of exercising their regulatory sovereignty of legislating uh, to protect public health, to protect the environment um, and many other public interest um, aspects or objectives, because everything they do may lead to a violation of a right or several rights of foreign investors. And this is precisely the reason behind this very strong reaction by, by Tanzania. It's, it's an attempt of the state to get back uh, the, the sovereignty, the control, the power over the natural resources and over the territory that they feel that they've lost. And I think that this sheds light on a much broader question, um, even besides natural resources, which is really the need to introduce more balance in international investment law between rights of states and rights of investors and even introducing potentially duties, uh, for, for for example, corporate social responsibility, uh, environmental duties for, for investors. And in the energy sector, this is particularly delicate, uh, the, uh, the creation of this balance. Energy investments, unlike investments in many other sectors, are very long term. They are very, very long contracts, uh, the contracts that foreign investors in energy sign with the state. And of course, it is important for the investor uh, to ensure that the the, the legal framework remains as stable and predictable as possible. Uh, The investor needs to be reassured that if the government changes, this doesn't automatically affect its investment. But on the other hand, the energy sector is one of the most dynamic sectors in the economy. The energy sector has mm, strong, significant negative externalities for the environment, a state should also have the freedom to regulate all these aspects. So this delicate balance between, on the one hand, the rights and potentially the duties for investors and the right to regulate of the state, um, this is really one of the, I believe, the central questions in international investment law today, and this action by, by Tanzania has been in reaction to this this question. Of course, there are many ways to respond. One way is through national legislation, which however, create several several issues and and also it doesn't really improve always predictability and stability uh, for for the investors. Other strategies involved um, amending or codifying new investment rules uh, that are more balanced uh, or uh, following an interpretative line in the jurisprudence that again tries to be more balanced, so we have different strategies, different avenues to try to uh, to introduce more balance in the relationship between investors and and states.
1: Yeah, so you're just mentioning one point that i would really um like to ask you as well is the, the interactions between parties inevitably lead to conflicts so in the domain of energy governance sustainability foreign investment etc trade as well all that you mentioned before um how can these forums and instruments that guide these domains be crafted in order to prevent power politics um, and assure an equitable um, advancement and development also when it comes to dispute resolution if the interests really contradict themselves.
0: This is, this is a, an extremely difficult question. Um, I believe that there are a lot of different elements that have to be balanced, uh, both in treaties and in, in dispute settlement. And, and you mentioned all of them. So there are different stakeholders. Uh, states, investors, um, individuals that have to be, you know, whose interests have to be accommodated. At the same time, we have different areas. We have environmental considerations and concerns, health, we have the economic growth, economic development. So all these different elements have to be somehow balanced and combined, both in, at the level of treaty making and dispute settlement. One way that I think can help in both in treaty negotiations and in dispute settlement, considering that these different areas of international law have been a little self-contained for a while. So you have trade tribunals with trade experts. Uh, You have uh, in investor state tribunals with experts of investment law. And the same goes with negotiations for a long time. Uh, Who negotiates investment agreements are experts in the field, the same goes with trade agreement. Um, One way that has been already has been already tested and I think it's proven quite useful is to introduce expertise, Uh, so different um, forms of expertise at the level of negotiations and and dispute settlement, having, for example, environmental or health experts or human rights experts in the context of trade negotiations, investment negotiations uh, or even at the level of, of dispute settlement, this can help uh, better balance all these different interests, rather than simply having a trade expert or an investment expert looking at environmental uh, or human rights considerations that are still extremely important in the energy context um, without really knowing the language or, or, or even having the mandate to integrate them entirely so this could be it's just a a small i think ingredient that could help in this direction but the key word is always balance i believe uh and i think that um working with a diversity of expertise um of different experts communities can be or can help you know achieving this this balance a little more
1: so um That was really interesting insight more um, very or rather specific on trade and investment and dispute um, settlement and you really interestingly um, demonstrated the evolution and the driving forces and new concepts that are um, emerging so on the more abstract level in a broader sense um, on the other hand law is also playing the role of a static force that hinders or can hinder advancements especially with regards to more progressive policies. Um, would you share this impression? And how can law as such be embraced as a crucial factor for advancements in the environment sector?
0: Yes, I I tend to agree with the statement, but with some clarification. So I agree that law in particular, when we think of international treaties, so international treaty law um, is quite static. In particular, and and this becomes a problem in particular when we're looking at the environment when we're looking at energy so sectors that are extremely dynamic and that evolve very quickly treaties are are static they are supposed to be uh, living instruments uh, and they're supposed to be able to adapt constantly to the changes in society they should reflect i mean law should reflect society at the end of the day but this is hard to achieve with treaty making treaties take a long time to, to be negotiated they take a long time to enter into force um, amending them is a long and cumbersome process and at the end of the day they can't always reflect at best the evolution of of um, the economic or social background for instance of the energy sector or um, tackle new environmental problems or address new environmental solutions and technologies if you think of the, of the Kyoto Protocol, for example, I think this is an excellent example uh, of a treaty that was signed to uh, deal with an urgent issue, a reduction of CO2 emissions. It took so long for it to enter into force because of their ratification requirements that when it entered into force, the targets it had set were already obsolete. So this is a good example of using a treaty which contains binding obligations, which we need in international law, but there are some shortcomings. And this is definitely one um, of these shortcomings. And we see the same um, in the the Energy Charter Treaty, which has been modernized today precisely because it was negotiated at a time where the energy sector looked nothing like it looks today. Another, we could call it shortcoming, of treaty law is uh, the fact that, of course, treaties are the result of a compromise. Uh, between states, sometimes many states, a hundred, even more uh, than a hundred states, it's a compromise between states that have different priorities, different concerns. Of course, this is part of international law. Often, this compromise is reached at the at the lowest common denominator, uh, so it often doesn't convey the ambition that some of the negotiators had. And when it comes to regulating the environment, protecting the environment, or fighting climate change this becomes an issue. So if we look at law, if you look at international law, thinking of treaties, I agree that there is this static element, this static nature that can, can become problematic and doesn't really help uh, advance and progress as society progresses and advances. But we also have other instruments uh, that are extremely, extremely useful. Um, soft law instruments, for example, play a very important role in this regard. And we we discussed a lot about investment law. Now, investment law, uh, we do not find a lot of modern or or progressive ideas in treaties, but we find uh, modern and progressive ideas in model treaties uh, that some countries in particular, African countries, for example, are developing. So these are soft law instruments. These should guide countries in their negotiations, but here we see uh, modern instruments for example, that introduced this balance between uh, investors and states, or even in the guidelines uh, developed by international organizations on corporate responsibility for for investors. But even in other areas, uh, soft law uh, plays a very important important role. And besides soft law at the international level, national legislation uh, is uh, becoming increasingly important uh, States have to incorporate whatever targets they set for themselves, for example in the context of climate change in their national legislation and then they will be bound uh, by this national legislation and in the same way international um, national tribunals and national courts have been helping um, you know developing the law in a way that is faster and more dynamic and and more progressive compared to what we see at the level of international uh, courts and tribunals.
1: Yeah, so that's a very interesting point uh, to touch upon the national level because several governments, um, for example the French government, are finding themselves before courts that have to determine whether these governments in actions regarding climate change constitute breaches of uh, international commitments so given your legal expertise, could you elaborate a little bit on the exact legal reasoning behind these cases and whether um, international law can be used as a tool to force stricter actions?
0: So um, exactly, national tribunals, national courts have been doing what international law hasn't been doing in certain areas. Uh, we, can, we can look at it, I think, this way. Now, the the, the French... Government being condemned to uh, to achieve certain targets uh, in the next few years because it didn't actually comply with its own targets that it had, it had set for for itself uh, for itself. Uh, they call it l'affaire du siècle, uh, if, if I'm not mistaken. Now this this case shows precisely what national law and what national tribunals can do um, to fill some gaps that we might have in international law. Now. I don't want to get into all the specificities, for example, of why the Paris Agreement has the structure and the normativity that it has, but in the Paris Agreement, we do not find binding emission reductions obligations for the states. Um, States are free to determine their own targets in terms of emission reductions. They have some obligations. The main obligations is to review these targets every five years. they have the obligation of no regression, meaning that after five years they can't set uh, lower ambitions, lower targets compared to the previous ones. But it's up to each state to to actually set, set these targets. Of course, once states set their targets, they incorporate them in national legislation, and then they need to respect this national legislation. And this case shows a very nice example of how a tribunal can a national tribunal can hold the state accountable for not complying with its own targets that it set at the national and at the international level. And even other cases before, the Urgenda uh, case in the Netherlands, for example, um, is another example of a national tribunal holding uh, a state responsible for climate change. Now, these decisions show I think a few different aspects the, the first important aspect is the fact that they either directly or indirectly apply international principles uh, in a national decision, uh, which is extremely interesting. Uh, and this, even to take a, a small step forward, uh, has been done recently uh, by a Dutch court, even against a corporation, not even against the state, against Shell in, in June. So applying international law, international principles to decide these domestic cases. That's the first element um, that I find extremely fascinating. The second is the role of civil society. This really, uh, I think, is a striking uh, new role for civil society. In general, in in international environmental law in particular, we have a very important principle that is called environmental democracy, um, which includes a set of rights for civil society, be it individuals or NGOs, um, regarding you know, vis-a-vis the role of the government in environmental matters, uh, the right to access environmental information, the right to participate in environmental decision-making, the right to access environmental justice. And these cases show precisely the application of this idea of environmental democracy. Uh, civil society, has now a power of public scrutiny over what governments are doing in environmental matters, in climate change matters. These are members of the civil society that are pushing for states to be held accountable uh, for not complying with their climate change standards. Uh, This I see as an extremely powerful tool uh, to ensure responsibility of states at the national level for commitments that they take at the international level And this compensates for what has often been considered a soft spot, literally, of international law in the area, which is this idea of soft responsibility uh, when it comes to holding states responsible under international environmental law. This really seems to fill this very, very serious gap uh, that we've had for for a long time. (music)
1: Thank you very much for all this insight into domains that I would really wish would be covered more extensively in international relations classes. And now even though it might seem a little bit abrupt, having in mind our audience that is to a large extent enrolled in bachelor's programs or master's programs, I would like to seize the opportunity of having you here to ask a more personal question related to your CV as it really stands out that you have been to Yale Law School, that is one of the most prestigious law schools of the US. Just for context, four out of the current nine Supreme Court justices have been to Yale University. So having in mind this prestige and maybe even the myths surrounding this institution, which you'll be willing to illustrate a little bit how the academic life there is, how the professors interact with students, how the classes are structured and overall how the approach to academia differs or does not differ with regards to continental Europe.
0: With pleasure. Um, I would say that there are are some main differences in the way in which classes are structured and academic life um, is, is perceived at Yale and other similar institutions. In the United States, compared to you rightly clarified continental Europe, because already in the UK the system is much more similar. Um, I definitely noticed a big difference uh, when I when I moved to uh, to New Haven to study at Yale after uh, my law degree in in Italy. I finished my law degree in 2010. Uh, I I got my LL.M. degree in 2014. But, um, and then I definitely found big differences. Um, the Socratic method is generally applied uh, at Yale and in other US institutions, which means that students play a big, important role in classes. Uh, it's not just about learning from the professors, but it's also learning from constructive discussions among students. Uh, students have a lot of freedom to develop their own curriculum, to, um, to start projects, to really pursue whatever they're passionate about in the the program. I have to say, though, that when I came back to Geneva to to study for my PhD at the Graduate Institute, and then as 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 staff at the University of Geneva, maybe because time has passed, but I find a lot of those advantages and all those uh, fantastic opportunities that for me were new when I moved to Yale, I actually am finding them every day Um, in Geneva, for example, that's my experience now. Uh, When I was a student at the Graduate Institute, we had wonderful opportunities, once again, to be heard. Our voices mattered, to develop our own projects, uh, to come up with a lot of initiatives. What we are doing right now, I think, is a kind of wonderful example of of this, of how students can uh, really take what they're passionate about and develop and develop it within the framework of, of, of the university. And even working now at the university with my colleague, we try to push for this same approach. So I did find something that was new for me and that I considered better, but I have to say that it is not so much different uh, from what I'm I'm seeing every day in Geneva. So I hope I didn't crush anyone's dream to, to move to the US and go to Yale. This doesn't mean that you don't have to to, you know, to travel and, and find other opportunities. From a strictly law perspective for, for the students that work, um, that study law, that is a big change uh, from just from a, from a purely um, law as a legal discipline, as how, how it is taught that it's a big change from continental Europe. First of all, it's common law country. It's not civil law. So the approach is already different. Uh, in international law, in particular, Yale, and New Haven is um, has given birth to one of the most important theories of international law, which is the New Haven School, which adopts a different approach compared to other approaches that we might be familiar with, more positivistic in in continental Europe. So, from that um, perspective, it is an interesting way to approach the law uh, in a in a different in a different way, and it's it's very enriching. Um, Therefore, for the academic life, I like to to think that a lot of the advantages that I saw, I see them every day um, here. So I think we're all very lucky where we are right now.
1: That is a fantastic um, outlook and and perspective that you're offering with uh, this statement. So it is unfortunately time to come to the end of our discussion, even though it has been very interesting. and. Again, um, does not really pop up in our usual classes. So I really recommend to everyone that is now interested in the field to go check out Dr. Chima's publications. And we always ask our guests the same last question. That would be what are three tips that you would give yourself at age 20 with everything you know now, with all your experiences? What would you say to your 20 year old self?
0: Well, I was I was lucky enough in my twenties to receive some very uh, valuable uh, and important advices and 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 tips. And so, what I would like to do is to try and give those same tips um, to uh, to students today. Um, the first one would be to get out of your comfort zone as much as you can, uh, whatever that means for you, uh, whatever that means to to move and to, and to work in a different country with a completely different social structure, level of economic development, or whether it is to launch yourself in, in an activity, whether it's a studying or working that really forces you to get out of your zone of comfort. I think this is a fantastic way to learn about your own abilities, your own skills and your own limits, which is which is also important and which takes me to the second um, tip, which is a tip that honestly I would, I would give to a 20-year-old, to a 30-year-old, to a 60-year-old. 60, 60 I think it's something that I try to, to think about quite often, which is to be humble. Um, again, be confident and be ambitious, but always remember that. From every experiences, from every interactions, there is a lot to learn. And I think that approaching all these new experiences with a little bit of humility is the best approach, the most constructive approach, and the most enriching way of of approaching these these experiences. And the third tip would probably sound like a big cliché, but it's something that I tell my students. Uh, on a weekly basis, so I feel like I should also share it here, which is to follow what you're passionate about. It seems a bit cliché to follow your passions, but I think it is important in in practice, in in everyday life. I tell my students when they are searching for their topic for a master thesis to choose something they're passionate about, because they're going to have to work on it for a year. And the same with your career or any big choices, you will have to live with it and and do that thing for a long time and it will be hard and it will be boring at times so if it's something you believe in that you're passionate about it will be worthwhile in the end this would be my my three i would say little tips
1: thank you for all the insight you were willing to share today it was extremely thought-provoking and enriching conversation. And to all our listeners, we're always happy about your feedback. We finally addressed climate change on Bariscope. I hope you're happy with what we were able to present to you today. So do always send us feedback on Instagram at bariscope underscore CCC. Stay in touch with us. And thank you very, very much for tuning in. Dr. Chima, it was a great pleasure to have you on Bariscope. Thank you again.
0: The pleasure was mine. Thank you for having me.